Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I tell you something, people. Um, so I have the Android 5. I haven't upgraded to the Android 6. I think one of the reasons is because I have a, a cool case for my Android 5. Joanne was working a Special Olympics uh, volunteer for that. And she won a raffle. So I got this Otter Box. So I want to keep it because these things are like 60 bucks for a good case. But my phone sends me this upgrade and you have no choice but to take it. And it's very irritating because you get used to a certain phone. You get used to how your uh, wallpaper looks. And so now I got this thing. I upgraded it. It took me like 15 or 20 minutes and all my buttons are changed. So I'm sitting there when I go to, you know, to use my calculator or whatever or that. It looks different and that's irritating. And the other thing that irritates me is it like lost like all my remembering like I would check into certain things with a with my password for some reason now it's not saving them so people you know just tell the phone companies that they should be able to just let us upgrade our phone when we went and our upgrading means when you buy a new phone anyway I have I have a great guest today uh very talented and uh, it's I I saw she was we had mutual friends and I saw what her uh her webpage and who all these people should play for and I've never had I've had drummers on and singers and I've never had a violinist and so me this is very cool and my guest is Eliza James how you doing Eliza hey I'm great so so now do you ever get upgrades on your phone what kind of phone do you have I have um I have an apple phone I'm an iphone user <laughs> and now do they do did some, I, I know a while ago they, they'll just do upgrades for you right they do um yeah I I generally just use my phone until it dies or or the last one was stolen at the airport. Um, and then I just get a new one. Okay. So now I got to ask you because, you, you, I mean, seriously, looking at your resume, you've had a fascinating career. And now when did you want to start playing violin? Were you, were you a little kid or how'd you, how'd you get into this whole music thing? And was violin your first choice? Violin was my first choice. Uh, when I was really small, uh, my parents took me to a concert, and there was a violinist playing, and I, I couldn't sit down in my seat. <laughs> and I walked around the house and pretended I was playing the violin, and my parents were like, hmm, maybe we should get her one of those. <laughs> and uh, I had taken some mommy and me piano classes, and piano I loved. I have always loved music, but... Violin was really the instrument that spoke to me. And now what do you mean what do you mean it spoke to you? Just it just jumped out at you and said, you know, this is you just saw it and were just like, Oh my god, I need to play that. Yeah, it really there was something about the violin that I just felt was my voice. And um I really I've, I love all instruments, but violin was definitely my first choice. And I never, like, I never had to, my parents never had to make me practice. You know, I was always telling my little friends, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go to the movies with you because I have a concerto competition or, <laughs> you know, I was always really dedicated to it. And I think that's true with, with everyone who plays an instrument. Like, if you find the right one, if you find what you feel is your voice, it's never really work. You're right. You know, it's funny because I have, I have a friend who plays guitar a lot and we'd be like, hey, yeah, we're meeting at a, you know, happy hour at five. And he goes, oh, I'll be down at 6.15 because I have to, I want to practice for an hour. And it seems like, yeah, if, if you want to play it, I mean, it must just be, 
if you're and plus if you're good at it so i mean if, if you're young and you pick up an instrument like me i tried to play the guitar and i was awful so i was like i'm not picking this up but for you it must have been, it's, it just it was second nature to you i guess yeah and but it also you know you don't sound good on the violin when you start no one does it's not possible you know it's it's a very difficult instrument and i think um my parents were really good at encouraging me and you know, encouraging the little the little steps along the way and the milestones that I made. And, you know, it takes about five years to sound good on the instrument. So what? how old were you when you started? I was three, almost four. Okay, so you were, I mean, really young. That's like, like you know, that's like stuff. We're just starting to get our first semblance of a memory back then of, you know, now as we get older. So you started at a young age and you said it took about five years. So around nine, I mean, figuring the time, did you just sit there? Was, were people noticing you were good? Because it takes a while, but and did you feel that you were good? I felt like I, I, I think I always felt like I was good at it, you know, like I, and I wanted to be good at it. It was something that I was very driven to do. And um, I remember I had a I got a new teacher when I was nine, and he was from the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. And I remember having an interview with him before he would agree to give me lessons. And he sat me down and said in front of my mom, "Well, I don't teach children." And I was just like, uh, "Why am I here? Right. Okay, you're kind of scary." <laughs> And he said, but if you will practice four hours a day, I will teach you. Do you want to do this for the rest of your life? And at that moment, I had to make a decision. At nine? At nine. Yeah. And, and I did. And, you know, it was really difficult. He, he was a really tough teacher. And I think he made me play scales for probably a year before I did any other kinds of music with him. But he really pushed me and, um, you know, I think I'm better for it. Now, you said he was from Philadelphia. Where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in England. And then uh, my father is British. My mother's from New Jersey. We're born in New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> She's from Cherry Hill. No way. I'm from Cherry Hill. Oh, small world. I graduated Cherry Hill East High School High School in 1982. Oh, wow. I'm not sure what high school she went to, actually. Um, but, yeah, she was going to Cambridge in England and um, met my father. Uh, they were working in a homeless shelter in the east end of London, helping homeless people. And uh, they met and had me. And then we moved to the States when I was very young. So I don't really have an accent, but I have all my dad's side of the family lives in England still. So we go back and visit. And uh, then my father, uh, he moved us to Oklahoma where he has, he's a doctor and he has a private practice there. And I started, I was taking lessons there and I took lessons there for a long time. It's where I met the teacher from Curtis, actually. And played in the college orchestras there and the Oklahoma Symphonia. And I really got to a place where I needed more um, I needed more than what was there. Okay. You know, I, I had gone pretty much as far as I could go. 
And so I had a teacher from California that I had been studying with, and she said, well, hey, I need a nanny. And so I, when I was 15, I moved to California and was her nanny and lived in her house and took care of her kids in exchange for lessons and been in California ever since. That's amazing. Now, now, I mean, just it's just it's so weird how things happen like that. You know, it's just it turns out that it ends up gravitating to where you end up spending your life here. Um, yeah. Now, as a kid, as I mean, when you're when you're getting older, you know, you're, you're practicing. Was there any people that you could watch? on TV or listen to that influenced you? Because so many musicians, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, like drummers will say, and I heard, you know, Farner, you know, certain yeah. song and this. As, a, as, as someone young and impressionable and you were getting good at your craft, was there people that you could look up to and you could say, I want to strive to be that person? Yeah, I, in fact, when I was... You know how kids have, you know, posters of their favorite actors or whatever on their walls? I had posters of my favorite composers and violinists. Okay. <laughs> Who were some of them? Um, so I really love Itzhak Perlman. He was really inspirational to me and still is to this day. One of the finest violinists that has ever lived. And Gil Shaham and... Um, Oh, there's quite a few. When I was young, I I gravitated towards Sarah Chang because she was the same age as me. And I loved her so much that I would practice my autograph, so to speak. <laughs> I loved the font on the front of her CD. And so I made my autograph look like how they spelled her name. <laughs> well, so, you're, so you were aiming for big things. I was. I was always aiming for big things. So now you come out to LA, about, and you're 15, and you're taking lessons. Are you getting out, because you're in an area, are you getting out to be able to play anywhere? Well, not really at that time, because I couldn't drive. And, you know, living in LA, it's hard if you can't drive. Um, but I was playing, my teacher taught at Azusa Pacific University, and I was playing in the college orchestra there, and a quartet there. So I got plugged in with the classical scene pretty early. And then when I ended up, I was accepted to the Cleveland Institute of Music for college, but um, when you get accepted to a conservatory, a lot of times what happens is you'll have a teacher, but that teacher's studio is sometimes full. So, and they sometimes they don't take freshmen. So you have to study with a teaching assistant and that was the case when I got accepted so I decided that since I'd been studying with my teacher in LA that I wanted to stay with her because it's really about your teacher and not so much where you go so you stay in LA and so now what as this, as you're you know getting 16 7 and all that what what are your career objectives do you is there something do you want to go play an orchestra or, I mean, what are, what were your objectives and what were the goals that you wanted to attain in your, you know, 18, 19, early 20s? You know, they actually changed a lot. Um, initially, when I was, when I was very young, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a classical soloist. That's my goal. And then as I got older... I started exploring different kinds of music 
and everything from swing to rock, I mean, jazz, whatever. And I started to sort of open my horizons, so to speak. And when I was out here, I started playing in bands and I found that I really loved being in a smaller ensemble. I love playing in orchestras, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like playing Beethoven's Ninth with a choir and a full orchestra. It's just unbelievable. But I found that a lot of my experience in the classical world, it was very stressful. And I wasn't sure if that was the path that I wanted to take anymore. You know, I love classical music and I will always play it. And it was just, it's probably the most stressful career you can have. Well, I was going to say that because I, I bet there's a ton of competition because it's not like, you know, it's not like you can just sit there and form, you know, classical bands. Yeah. I mean, bands, you can go, hey, you play the drums. Yeah, you play a guitar. Okay, we got a band. But for that, there's probably just a limited spots. And there's so many people that, you know, we, you know, we don't really think about it because you don't see it as much. But like when I was a kid in Cherry Hill, we had a great theater department. We had a great orchestra. We had a great band. Yeah. And there's so many back then, you know, and, and I mean, I don't think people concentrate on music as much anymore in schools, which is sad. But I think there was, when you're coming out, you've played for a long time. You know, to get to the point of being your first chair in a high school, you've been playing since you were a young kid. And when you want to go and go beyond that, that I mean, the competition must be cutthroat. It is cutthroat. And, you know, and I'm, I'm still in it, so to speak. You know, I'm still, I still play with orchestras and everything. And I think part of the reason that I decided to expand my horizons and do other kinds of music was partially the pressure of it all. You know, you have to you have to live a happy life. And I found that, you know, by by just focusing on classical music in that competitive atmosphere, I I was really, really just a mess sometimes, you know, it was just, it, it made me not like playing it because it was so stressful and I never want to lose the love for it. So I was like, you know, I'm going to just go with this and see what happens and start playing different kinds of music with different people and see, you know, where, where I end up. And I, you know, you have to be classically trained to be a successful um, violinist. Not so much fiddle player, but if you want to call yourself a, a real violinist, the music that was written for the instrument is classical. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's where all your technique comes from and, and, and your training. So it's, a very, it's very important to always play classical music as a violinist. So what was the reaction like when, when you start doing this breakaway? Cause I mean, you, you were very good classically and you said you were stressing out and you know, it wasn't yeah. happy and that would stink because as we say, the reason you do, you play an instrument or you do music or you do comedy or you act is because you don't want to feel those normal stresses of a job. 
you know, that's yeah. a, it's a thing. But so now, how are how are people's reactions to you when they heard you were branching off? Was it like, oh, I mean, it's because a lot of people weren't doing that, I'm sure. Yeah. So how did people react to you? Well, at first, my parents were a little bit stunned. <laughs> Like, what is our daughter doing playing country music? <laughs> you know, because I, I play everything. So, you know, how do you go from Beethoven to country? And, you know, you've had all this training. Are you just throwing it out the window? And it took a little bit. Uh, but I think that that eventually they, they've come around, you know, especially when I started playing with Burt Backrack. You know, and... and my parents were like, okay, this is great. Right, of course. <laughs> you know, but I think in any style of music, there is there are good artists, you know? It's, it's not that one style of music is better than another. You find the good artists within whatever style it is that you're playing. So that's always been my goal, you know? I want to find the best people play with because that also makes me a better player now when did you start looking for those people because i mean you're the people you've played with is amazing but when did you really start branching out and trying to get work with different people and what's it like for a vinylist to get work because a lot of times people you know don't associate you know let's say rock and roll with a violin i mean for me i do because from jungle land with springsteen there's the violinist in the beginning and you know it's just a different thing but how do you sit there and where did you know where to look because it's it's not like hey we're looking for violinists you know that doesn't happen how did you start your whole this career path and figuring who to hit up and go where i mean how did it all start you know i have always been a self-starter and i have no problem just walking up to people and saying, hey, you need a violinist. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's honestly what I did. I would go see bands perform and uh, really good bands. And I would say, hey, guess what? I think I could help you. I think I could make this really cool. And I would just talk my way in. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, networking is a huge part of a huge part of being a freelance musician. You, know, you have to, you have to be a good networker. So it's, and you have to always have a presence, especially in, in Los Angeles, which is a very out of sight, out of mind place. You know, if you, if you're gone for too long, then people forget about you. Right. And it helps now that we have, you know, Facebook and, we can do Skype calls and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's, you just have, you have to have a presence and you have to always be connecting with people and also, you know, recommending people for things. I, I sort of have a, my, I don't know, my MO is that, you know, if somebody calls me for a job and they're say, they say, oh, I'm, you know, I need, six violas, four cellos, or whatever, I always offer up recommendations because I feel like what goes around comes around. That's true. I mean, I, I think in this business, you know, every, I like to say everyone's on the same side. I mean, I do that with guests. Yeah. You know, someone sent me a message. They said, hey, you know, can you uh, get me this guy? 
on my show. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I mean, because what I do with my guests is, I mean, I talk to you for an hour, but when I had a studio, you became very close because you're in on one-on-one interaction. But you get yeah. to know somebody because it's an hour. But then I always think, well, you know what? I'll recommend them. And, you know, if, if, my, if my friend can get some, you know, a guest and my guest who has become a friend can get some publicity, it's everyone's happy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, uh, it's nice to work with your friends, too. And I have a very wide circle of friends. I, I always, I enjoy meeting new people and adding people to my circles. You know, I feel like surrounding yourself with creative, interesting people is one of the best things you can do because it makes you, it elevates you. And so whenever I am asked for a recommendation, I try to bring that to the table, you know, I'm like, look, I can elevate your gig as well. And, you know, recommending the right people for, for jobs is really important. Now, now what was one of your first, you know, what, when was your, for what was one of your first gigs that you all of a sudden and said, okay, man, this, I dig this. This is, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to be a freelancer. Cause you know, it is probably scary as a freelancer. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people, you don't know, you know, who you're going to play with, but you know, if you're good, you're always going to play. But when did this whole freelancing and just the, the amazing lists of musicians you played with, when did that start? Who was like the first act, first gig that you got that you were like, damn, this is cool. Well, I think the first, the first gig that I really remember was a TV gig. And I was like, I don't know, five. <laughs> And I was playing Christmas carols or something. I don't even remember the name of the show, to be honest. And I remember the host of the show interviewed me or asked me a couple of questions or something. And uh, I said something about being a professional violinist. And I think at that point I realized, like, oh, wait, yeah, I'm a professional violinist. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, and when I was, I I played in this great um, group that really nurtured me when I was young, um, the Ottawa Suzuki Strings. They were based in Kansas, and the woman who runs the group, Alice Joy Lewis, is one of my heroes. She's amazing. And she put together this group of kids, and we would, we were ambassadors for the state of Kansas, and we went to England and Australia and whole bunch of places and we would play concerts for other kids and I think I just I realized how connected the world was and that I just wanted to be a part of everything (laughs) you know I didn't want to just limit myself to one job I was like ooh, I could do lots of things (laughs) I could have lots of interesting experiences (laughs) now how because you play different uh you you play you I just said country and stuff like that how do you start learning something like I saw you played uh, with Gagouche which is Persian I I saw that you play how do you sit there and attack that kind of music do you sit there and go okay I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to some Persian style music and see how I can fit in I mean how does that start because it's funny is no one even knows who Gagouche is and the only reason I know is because I was walking by this one Armenian owned pizza place right around the corner from me and I saw a sign for Gagouche and I asked the owner he's a nice kid I go Who's yeah. Gagouche? And he told me, and I guess she's playing at the Coliseum. This is a few years ago. Not the Coliseum, the 
the forum just a few years ago. How do yeah. you how do you target like something like that? Like how do you start learning that kind of music? Because it is different. It is. It's very different. And honestly, the first Persian gig that I ever did, I didn't know it was a Persian gig. <laughs> <laughs> I just I got hired. It was a corporate thing. I got hired. I was told, oh, it's going to be pop stuff with a DJ. And then I show up and it's all Persian stuff. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, I know nothing about this style of music. But I've always had a really good ear. It's sort of, it's one of my strengths, I think. Um, and so I just listen. And, you know, occasionally you're like, oops, that note didn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait, quarter tones? Oh, <laughs> you know, and because this and the phrasing structure is totally different and you just have to listen to it and you just have to like really focus. And now, I mean, it's sort of second nature. I know the tunes. It is a little bit hard because I don't speak Farsi. So, <laughs> you know, when when you're trying, when someone says, do you know this song? And you're like, uh... I don't even know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I, have I, no idea, I, yeah, I have no idea what you just said. I have no yeah, idea. I have no idea what you just said. Can you sing the melody for me? It's, I can tell you. So, you so, 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 but did, did you, was it, uh, was it very uh, fulfilling to actually get to learn it then? Because as I said, it's not a big style of music. And to have that under your belt must have been a great feeling. Yeah, you know, once I, I got a handle on it, I started getting tons and tons of Persian gigs. And now I, people call me all the time for that. And it's, you know, it's, I feel like it's a, it's a weapon in my arsenal now, you know, which is, it's good. And, and it, it's broadened my horizons. You know, there's a lot of, and not just Persian music, there's a lot of different styles of Middle Eastern music in general. And, you know, I play a lot of, you know, Israeli music and, and it's just sort of broadens your horizons. And opens up the world to you. And, you know, there's so many styles of music in the world. You can never stop learning. Now, how do you adapt? When you when you go in to play with someone new and you don't really know them, because you said someone calls you, or like you went to that gig, the corporate gig. How, how do you adapt quickly to people when you're playing? Because they all must have different styles. And as I said, when you play so many different kinds of music, which you do, you know, you're playing with a, sometimes I guess you show up with a band who have been playing for a while and you show, show up. How do you adapt to that? You really have to just listen. Listening is the most important skill you can have, I think, as a human and definitely as a musician. You need to, you know, whenever I play with a new group, I, it's really important, you know, you introduce yourself, you find out what they're about even before you get there. You know, you do your homework and... And you find out, and you ask questions, you know, where, what would you like me to play? Like, this is, if I'm playing with a band and they're already established, I'm like, okay, so I'm not just going to walk in there and be like, hey, what's up, guys? I'm going to solo over everything. <laughs> you know, I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to say, okay, what are your ideas? Tell me what, you know, where you'd like me to fit in. And then I take, I go from there and I then make it my own. You know, I put my own twist on things, but I always ask questions and I always make sure that I'm, you know, just respectful that it, it's their music. So, you know, you want to do what they want first. And then if they say, oh, just play whatever you want, 
you just have to be aware of what's going on. You know, you don't want to, when you're soloing with a band, you know, it's a conversation. It's like, you say something, I say something. Sometimes we say it together. Sometimes we joke around and we play off each other. You know, so you have to figure out what the what your role is in the music. Now, who were some of the bands you, in your beginning stages of your career, you started playing with that you were excited to play with? I mean, I'm sure you're probably always excited to play because you love the instrument. But who were some of the bands that you played with in the beginning and how did they find you? Well, I played in a band in college. Um, I can't even remember the name of the band. Oh, my gosh. Um, I played in a band in college, and um, I met the guys, you know, my freshman year, and we just, they were like, hey, let's make some music together. So we ended up doing that, and then we played a couple of places around town and stuff. Um, And then I started just, I played with this really great artist named Paul Chesney. He's a country, he's like country meets Dr. Dre. Okay. <laughs> and he was really, really fun. And he sort of let me explore country and, and you know, the art of soloing with him. You know, so that was really, that was really cool. And I, um, and then I got the call from Burt Bacharach when I was 23. And that changed my life. Well, I must, I mean, you think, you know, I mean, everybody, and I'll be honest, everybody knows who Burt Bacharach is. And, and yeah. if, if you don't, you might as well be sitting under a... Uh, Living under a rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he has gone on, he's played with Elvis Costello and he's, you know, he's been revelant for years how did they find you? I mean, and it's, it was such a big star as, as you know, you said 23. Well, 23, I know I was getting out of college. If someone, you know, had called me and some offered me some kind of job, I would have been like, oh my God, what was that like when you got the call? It was pretty mind blowing, actually. Um, I had met his music director. Uh, he hired me for a session and uh, we became friends and then, about a year later, uh, I got a call, and it's like, hello, this is Burt Bacharach for Eliza. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, whose friend is it? Who, who are, who's playing yeah, a joke on me? <laughs> like, what? What's happening? Is this, are you joking? And so Burt got on the phone, and he was like, hey, so I, I have this violin part that I just wrote. Um, can you come down to Ocean Way Studios and give it a listen? And I was, honestly, I was in the car before I hung up the phone. <laughs> um, because I lived right down the street from Ocean Way. And I got there, and I listened to it, and we talked for a while. And he was like, hey, so uh, you want to play Vegas? <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know, because he had never had a violinist in his self-contained band he played with many 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 orchestras you know before and but he had never the self-contained band is a smaller group we do like jazz festivals and stuff like that um and so I said yes of course (laughs) and I did the gig in in Vegas and 
as he introduced me to the crowd, I still didn't know what was going on really. I thought, oh, well, this is maybe just a one-off thing, you know. And he introduced me to the crowd and he said, this is Eliza James. Doesn't she look lovely this evening? <laughs> and like, what a nice introduction, you know. And then he said, she's our newest band member. So this is just, you're, you're just expecting, a, the, as you said, a one-off. And then he's saying our newest band member. Yeah. In, fr- in front of the crowd. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> now, where, we, where, did you, where was it playing at? Where in Vegas? Uh, we're at the Orleans in Vegas. You know, so- um, yeah, it's, you know, Vegas has changed a lot. It, I guess back in the day when all the greats used to perform there and have, you know, shows. Uh, they had a lot of showrooms, and now it's a lot of you know Cirque du Soleil kind right. of productions and stuff. So the the days of the of the going to see you know Frank Sinatra in a showroom those are kind of those days are kind of gone. But there's still a few. But that was we played the Orleans a couple of times because they had a, a nice room like that. So. Now, how nervous were you that first? I mean, when when he brought you out. I mean, I know you must be excited, but and especially because you're you're a kid, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, how terrified were you? I mean, you know, you got to sit there. I know you, you're good. You know, you're good at what you do. I'll see when the best you. But then you got to sit there and go, "Holy crap!" You know, I'm coming on stage with Burt Backrack. And then when he introduced you as it's not it's not not only a, a great feeling for you to play, but then when he introduced you as a new band member, I mean, how do you contain your emotions? You know, I I just sort of like had this frozen smile on my face, like, oh my god, oh my god, don't jump up and down right now, just smile, just smile and wave. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it was it was amazing, and you know, I wasn't expecting it at all. I didn't know what to expect, so it kind of threw me off guard. So I think at first I was sort of stunned. <laughs> now, now, what was your schedule like after that i mean first of all i mean you i know you had said you had been overseas when you were a kid playing in front of kids but what was it like now where it's like you're performing with a established legend and you're going to be i mean you must have sat there and thought i'm going to just see the world at these most beautiful you probably played in some beautiful concert halls as you toured the world you know it was it was amazing and i remember the first time we went to italy I just, you know, you just pinch yourself. You're like, I'm really here. This is really happening to me. <laughs> you, know, you have to keep reminding yourself. It's not a dream. It's not a dream. You know, and we, I've played some incredible places that I uh, just, whenever I have a, a rough day, I just close my eyes and take myself back there, you know. What are some of the places, like just these concert halls, like in what cities, a few of them that just really stand out like and you sit there and go you know wow look at this place and look what i'm doing this is amazing are there certain few cities that you just sit there and if you get you know if their tour comes up and you get a chance to go back that you get really excited about oh yeah for sure i mean uh let's see there was a place um in sicily called taramina and it was this Roman amphitheater overlooking the Mediterranean. And 
every, I mean, it's just, it's, there are no words to describe how beautiful this place is. And to be playing, doing what you love, overlooking it must just be amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, the whole experience of going there, it was, it was an amazing story. We were um, flying from Rome, where we had to connect through Rome to go to Sicily. And the Mount Etna, the volcano, uh, erupted. And so we got stuck in Rome because they couldn't land the plane while there was, you know, volcanic ash flying through the air. So we get stuck in Rome, and um, eventually the next day we, we went to Sicily, and we get to our hotel, and as we're driving to the hotel, you can see the volcano erupting. And there's, like, ash in the air a little bit. And I get to my hotel, and I'm standing on the balcony, and I'm catching this volcanic ash in my hands. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I was like, ooh, this doesn't happen very often to anyone, you know? And the next day, like, I just remember we're driving to the venue, and it's just on one side there's a volcano erupting. On the other side there's this beautiful Mediterranean and it, it, it was just the most incredible experience. And we're playing this amphitheater. And, you know, when you tour in Italy, they, the Italians, they love their food so right. much. My girlfriend's and, Italian. And believe yeah. me, I know. It's... And for good reason, too, because it's the best food ever. <laughs> and, you know, we went to soundcheck. And then we had some time to walk around this little town, these tiny little streets and eat gelato and I was, you know, writing in my journal overlooking the ocean and that's just unbelievable. And we go to this restaurant and there's, you know, they're making the food right in front of us and it's so fresh and, you know, we have this amazing band dinner and then we play this incredible show and just the entire day I was just overwhelmed with how beautiful and amazing everything was and I think... You know, it's moments like that in your life, you just, you live for that, you know? You know, you probably look back and said, you know what, practicing four hours a day was well worth it because well look what worth I'm doing. It, you know, maybe I didn't go to, maybe I didn't go to prom, but you know what, <laughs> I went to Taramina, so I'm all good. Exactly. So so now, when, when once you're working with Burt Backrack, when the tour stops, how does it change your name in the industry? Because you must have, you know, now people must sit there and go, you know, Eliza, she plays with Burt Backrack. It must have brought you up a game for other other artists to sit there and want to start working with you. Yeah, you know, it definitely did. It definitely did. It. it I mean, Burt Backrack will add to anyone's credibility. You know, um, and so I started working with a lot of different people, and I was also playing, you know, in the Young Musicians Foundation Orchestra debut orchestra. And so I had art, I had started making connections there, and and then to add Bert to it, it really, really did help my career quite a bit, you know. And it's, I guess I'm very blessed that I had that opportunity because it's really hard to. You can be really, really, really talented, but if no one knows, <laughs> you know, you're not going to work. Right. Now, now, how did the Paul Anka gig come along? Another, another legend. I mean, how did how did that 
happened. I told my girlfriend, I said, wow. I said, my guest has to push back a little bit because she's talking to Paul Anka. I'm like, how, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how cool is that? And it's not like she's saying, oh, yeah, I got to talk to my landlord about a, a clogged pipe. I'm talking <laughs> to Paul Anka. Uh, how did that come about? Did that come through Backrack? And how often do you tour with him and play with him? Um, well, I got the call from from Paul Anka's music director about three and a half years ago. And I guess, I, and I had been recommended, he was working with a violinist, a good friend of mine, Christine Wu. He was working with her. And she was doing a lot of TV stuff and couldn't do the gig. So she recommended me. And then the music director looked me up and said, hey, do you want to play with us? And again, it was a... It was one of those things, like, I wasn't sure if I was subbing or if I was, you know, just going to be on a couple of gigs. And then um, the first gig I did with him was a, a technology test thing for some, I don't even know. I was in the, we were in a pit. <laughs> we didn't even see any, anything that was happening on stage. But I knew, no, we played my way about 60 times in two days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know that song really, really well. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then after that, uh, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, you just kind of like, okay, do you do a good job? And then see what happens after that. And then they called me and they're like, hey, can you go to Singapore with us? And so it was New Year's. So I went and played um, that big... Uh, it has a boat on top of it, the casino. The sa- I think it's a Sands Casino. Okay. And it's this giant, giant casino. And, and you know, it's, in Singapore, all the architecture is really space-agey. <laughs> and um, so it was really a cool experience to go and see this place. I had never been to Singapore before. And me, and, you know, hang out with the band more and everything. And then... Uh, after that gig, they were like, "Hey, here are the dates for the for January." <laughs> you know? So that's how that kind of happened. And and I've, you know, being with two legendary artists like Burt Bacharach and Paul Anka has really, I really love my bosses. You know, <laughs> they're, they're I respect them so much. There's you learn so much working with them and. And you end up working with such great people, too, because they hire the best. Right. You know, so you're constantly surrounded by people who are who are great musicians, who have been on the road for a really long time. And you can really gain a lot of knowledge from them. Now, have their tours ever coincided? And what would you do if they did? Um, they have occasionally conflicted. Not very often, actually, which is nice, because... Uh, it's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> um, I do have uh, a couple of subs that I, you know, that play for me when I can't. Because basically, you know, as a freelancer, you take whoever books you first. Right. So, you know, and, and it, it, it always works out because I'm always upfront about stuff like that. And, and everyone is very, I'm very respectful of each artist that I work with. So now, now you also have, you've played on some different scores of TVs and movies. Yep. Now, how did you get into that? 
another crazy story. I was in the airport coming back from a gig with Backrack, and I was waiting for my bags at LAX, and a guy came up to me, and he was like, hey, is your fiddle player? And we just started chatting, and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm an orchestrator. And I didn't, you know, he's like, do you have a card? So I gave him my card, didn't think anything of it. Three weeks later, I got a call um, asking if I could play March of the Penguins. So, you know, the rest is history. You know, once you start doing gigs like that, um, it, those are the hardest gigs to get, actually. Why is that? It's very, very competitive. And they pay really well. And there are, there are guys in L.A. that have been, you know, playing movie scores for 40, 50 years, you know. And it's really, it's probably, aside from, like, getting a seat in, you know, L.A. Phil or Chicago or, you know, New York Philharmonic, aside from that, it's probably the hardest gig to get. Now, you've done that a lot. Now, how so you've played award shows. How did you get to the award shows? Is that the same thing? Someone knows you and they say, you know, come to this. I know you've played on Jimmy Kimmel Live and stuff like that. How do you get those gigs? Those gigs are pretty much word of mouth. You know, there's a contractor. You you meet different people who contract gigs like that. And, you know, you have to, for the TV stuff, you know, it's a lot of image. You know, you have to... um look a certain way but you know you know how it is it's like it's an entertainment business right so. it's the show business we it's got a show, show. business <laughs> yeah so and you know a lot of uh, you have to be easy to work with for those gigs because those gigs are a lot of hurry up and wait okay you know you get to set and they're like show up at six in the morning and you show up and you don't do anything until 11.30. Oh, I know. I've, I've done hand insert stuff and you sit there and you go in and it's like your, your call time is like 7 in the morning. So you get there and you wait till like 3 and yeah. then they sit there and your whole shoot, because you're just, they're just taking your hand doing an action, it takes 8 minutes and you're like, couldn't you just start me off with this yeah. you know, and leave because you're still getting paid the same. Yeah, you're getting paid to sit around, you know. Um, but it, it's a lot of patience and and um, just, you know, knowing the right people, to be honest, it's, that's half the battle in this town is, is knowing, knowing the right people and, and being easy to work with. And, and, you know, there are certain things like um, I've done gigs where I've been told, because I have blonde hair, and I've been told, well, they don't really want to use any blondes. <laughs> so... I got a brunette wig. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you got to work with people. <laughs> yeah, you got to, it's a business. You got to do I'm certain fine. things. I mean, you're not going to go and dye your hair, but you get a wig and it's fine. Yeah. You know, I'll have any color hair you want me to have. You want me to have pink hair, I'll have pink hair. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, do you ever get tired of the road? I mean, or is it not as much? I mean, how often will you go out on the road with, with Bert and Paul? Uh, look at me, I'm using their first names like I know them. Yeah, how do you go with Bert and Paul? Uh, how often a year do you go out with the road for them? And how long do the tours last? And do you ever get, you know, just, it's, I'm sure it's, you know, after a while, it's a city after city and they all start to blend together. You know, it does, it, it is exhausting 
but I think because I started touring when I was so young, like, it's just normal to me. You know, like, I get, it's weird, I get antsy if I'm not on a plane. Okay. Somewhere. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I haven't flown anywhere in, like, like a month. What's going on? <laughs> like, you know? And um, I just, you just get used to it. And and I, I love being in a different city every night or every couple nights, you know, I love exploring different places. And, you know, it's, I'm always the person I like get to the hotel. I'm like, okay, we're in a cool place. All right, drop the bags, call some, <laughs> right. call anyone, you know, in this town, let's go have fun. You know, that's good though. Now I, I can say that she also, I saw on your, uh, your, on your webpage, which people, it is, uh, Eliza James music.com. Uh, I saw that you've played like at the Grove at the Christmas show. Yeah. Now, how great? Because I'm a, I'm a I'm like a sap for Christmas. I love the specials. I love the music. Yeah. How cool is it to sit there and play, and where everybody's probably just appreciating it, and it's, it must make you just feel so holidayish. Yeah, it was great. You know, that gig was I think that was the first time because when you do a gig that's outside like that um that was with the debut orchestra and Burt Bacharach and when you do a gig that's outside like that uh a lot of times they will do a pre-record in the studio okay especially when there's a lot of moving parts you know when you have multiple artists on one stage and you've got to move you know 30 people before the next commercial break, <laughs> you know, so they'll do a pre-record and then you will be, the group on stage will be mic'd um, and also playing to themselves so that it can be timed with TV and all that. And, you know, the sound mix can be right and everything. So they are, they're playing over themselves but it, there's also a recording underneath. Right, my friend, my friend. You probably, do you know Rich Redmond? Yeah. Well, totally. Rich Rich said the same thing on like with they put like things in their drums when they do an award show for the same reason you're playing, but in case something happens, it works out. Right, exactly. And, you know, cuz you you never know and there's so many things happening at those shows at the same time, you know. It it takes off it takes a little bit of the of the, you know, nerve-wracking part of it out <laughs> but um but yeah so that gig we had done the pre-record the day before at Capitol Records and I was concert master of the string section and it was Bert's session and Studio A and I have to say that was that was pretty amazing <laughs> that right. was one of those moments, like, I still have in my violin case, I have stickers on the back of it. And I still have the little capital Studio A name tag sticker. So that's big stuff. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. And and that was a really cool concert. Also because, I mean, it was a huge audience. The Grove is a big place. And it was at capacity. They had the fire marshals. They weren't allowed to let anyone else in. So how, how many violins do you have? I have uh, my good acoustic violin, and then I have a five-string electric violin, and I have my, my playing outside and or in bars violin. 
<laughs> and now where do you keep them? Do you have them all cased up in a, in a, in a like a locked up area because they're probably like your babies? I mean, they're like they're, they are definitely. I mean, I keep them in a place that's not too humid, that um, doesn't get too cold or too hot. It's pretty temperate, um, and they all are in protective cases for sure. Now, when um, when you travel with them, do they let you take them on the plane as carry on? Um, usually I only travel with one violin at a time. So, and I definitely, definitely always take it as a carry-on. I've, you know, had a, a few times people have given me problems about it. Um, but there's actually a letter that the union, the musicians union, um, they published this letter and it's, cause there's a federal law that you can take a uh, violin on a plane. Because it's it's an irreplaceable right thing. It, yeah you know, you know, it's not like you, they make every violin that's made is handmade and different. So what's the waiting process like? If you wanted to get a new violin, and you know you get it handmade, I mean it's not like you're going. I mean you could go to a thrift shop, but I mean you know I'm not a thrift shop, but like a pawn shop you see on TV and stuff. But now, yeah. how long does a violin? If you want if you want to get a new violin, do you have a certain person you go to and you know you're going to have to wait because there's probably a backlog? Well. Honestly, when you want to get a new violin, a lot of times you don't buy a new violin. Okay. Because the, like, my my good violin uh, was made in 1920. Oh, wow. And there's, uh, older violins have had a chance, the wood matures. And that's why, you know, Stradivarius and Amatis and Guarneris, that one of the reasons that they're such good instruments is because they, um, you know, they've had many, many, many years to, to absorb the vibration from people playing them. The more a violin is played, the better it becomes. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So now these days, and I've seen you, uh, we're friends on Facebook and I've seen you, um, you do the lucky strike every once in a while or the whiskey. Mm -hmm. Now, how did that, how does that come about? And like, how do they decide what songs you're going to play on? And do you sit there or do you call them and go, Hey, I want to come down and play like, you know, I know like Tichi, Brian Tichi's doing, uh, Led Zeppelin at, um, yeah. tonight. But how does that come about? Did they just said, Hey, come down. Cause you know, all these musicians. Actually, um, Jonathan Moffat, the drummer for Michael Jackson, I went to a jam session and he was there and I was, you know, I'd been on the road a lot and I was trying to sort of go out and meet more people and, you know, get different kinds of gigs and just, just have more of a presence in town. And so I, I ended up at this this jam session at the Viper Room, and he was there, and he, we started talking, and he's like, you know, I heard about this great, there's this great jam at Lucky Strike, you should come check it out, and I knew nothing about it, and I just walked in, and I had my instrument, <laughs> and I just walked in, and I knew so many people there already, I kept running into friends, and I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long. And, you know, it's like, cheers. Right. <laughs> and um, and then I found out, like, oh, well, you should talk to this guy. At the time, it was Chuck Wright who was running it. This was like a year ago. And so they were like, okay, talk to him. And I 
I talked to him, and at first he was like, well, we had a violinist once before, but it didn't really work out. Let's see, you know, whatever. So he put me on, and then it was just like, oh, you can really play. Okay. And you're like, yeah, does the name Burt Backrack of Paul Akin mean anything? <laughs> yeah, but, you know. I know. It, it can be, I understand the skepticism, though, because, you know, violin is not their but these are rockers, you know, and violin is not like their first thought <laughs> when they're like, oh, we're going to have a rock jam session, you know, it's like, oh, well, she can jam. And, and also because I can improvise and, and, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a skill to be able to improvise. Uh, you have to work on it constantly and you get better the more you do it. And a lot of, you know, when you're growing up learning classical music, you're taught to read what's on the page. And so for a lot of uh, people who come from classical backgrounds, improvising can be a very scary thing because you don't have a page. Right. <laughs> and you just, you kind of have to get over that fear of, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to play? And just let your ears do what they do. We're, we're running out of time. I, um, I just want to know, now what, what takes, where are you going next? Are you going out, who, are you going out on the road with Paul or Bert soon? Or? I'm out with, uh, with Paul on, we leave for Hong Kong on the 21st. Wow. And then I get back on the 25th and on the 28th, I go to Austria, Vienna with Backrack and then we have a we're playing the a jazz festival in Vienna, and then we go to the UK and we do the Love Supreme Festival, and I think just outside of London, and then we do Royal Festival Hall with Joss Stone, and then we have another jazz festival after that, and then Monte Carlo, Copenhagen, and Reykjavik. Wow. I mean, you guys sit there and go, man, when you picked up that violin when you were three, you, I, you must have sat there and went, I mean, if you could look back as a three-year-old and see all the places you play, I mean, it just must be astonishing. You know, I, it's pretty amazing. Like, I got a new passport recently. Mine expired. And I was looking through my old passport, and I'm like, wow, my life in a little book, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I, I want to thank you for coming on. This was fun. I I, I was excited because I saw and I was like, I got to get to her on the show because it's just your your musical lineage and just playing. So how do people get in touch with you? Do you tweet? I do tweet. Um, my Twitter is at Eliza James VLN. And that's also my Instagram. And I have Eliza James Music uh, on Facebook. It's Facebook slash Eliza James Music or Eliza James VLN. There's many ways. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on. And, uh, oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, and people, please check her out. Follow her on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. You can also go to my website. I have 520. I'll put number 520 up tonight. 520 episodes up there. A lot of people have played at Lucky Striker in there, too. So if you like musicians, I've had a bunch of them. So go to coopertalk.net. Also, if you want to email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Instagram, coopertalk1. Words with friends. I'll play you back. Cooper Talk 1. Um, also, my other website, stopthesalt.com. It was four years ago when I had my heart condition. 
and I've gotten better and it was from eating healthy. So it's 120 easy recipes, low sodium, no pictures to uh, get you intimidated, no big list of ingredients, just easy cooking. Get that. It's uh, You can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. Buy it from me. I make more money. So go to StopTheSalt.com. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Google Eliza James. Go to her website. Keep listening to music. Keep listening to my show. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.